Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of September 8th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. This morning as we gather together to, to read God's Word, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12. So we'll continue our look through this gospel. You know, we all have or have had at some point in our lives probably some people we looked up to. Heroes. Uh, maybe somebody we kind of looked at and I like to be like them. You know, for a lot of young men like myself when I was younger, he was a, maybe an athlete, you know, baseball players or basketball players or football players. Maybe you were in the music and you can think of musicians or singers that you looked up to, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, heroes, perhaps of one generation or another. And each generation kind of has their own heroes or their own people they look up to. For some of you, it was Elvis. Some of you, it is Elvis. <laughs> or maybe it was somebody going back as far as a Frank Sinatra. Now, for some of us, a little bit younger, it might have been a Bruce Springsteen or a John Lennon or Bono. If you don't know who those names are, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I remember the first, uh, the first athlete I remember really following and admiring was a guy named Roger Staubach, quarterback for some of you guys. Yeah, Roger Staubach, Cowboys. Now, some of you younger guys are going, who? Remember the first Arkansas Razorback I used to go, wow, okay, I'd like to be like that. Sidney Moncrief. Now that, again, that dates me a little bit. Some of you are going, okay, I remember Corliss Williamson and Scotty Thurman. And some of you are still going, who are they? And we, we've got all these heroes and people we've looked at through the years, and each one of them kind of belonged to a certain generation. If I were to say the name Mickey Mantle, Somebody go, oh yeah, I had a baseball card to him one time. And you, you can almost date yourself by what generation you are, by what heroes you had, right? Well, that was my father's or my grandfather's generation, or that was my dad's generation, or this is our generation. And they changed throughout the course of time because, well, the feats of those guys, the accomplishments that had a Mickey Mantle had or a Roger Staubach had or a Sidney Moncrief, you know, those, those belong to years past. Hate to tell you Razorback fans, Coach Williams is not walking through the doors this year to play basketball. I'd take, take him walking through the doors right now to play football, for that matter. Some of you saw the score yesterday. But we all have heroes. We all have people we looked up to. And again, they belong to a generation, and, but those times are past. That was, that's what they did then. And they're doing something different now, and probably the young people today aren't worried about Mickey Mantle or even Sidney Moncrief. In Jesus' day, it was still common to refer to the founding fathers, if you will, of Israel. They still used them in the prayers. They talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They talked about that God when they prayed. They talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout the course of the day. And if you remember all the way back in, in the book of Exodus, when Moses is at the burning bush before he leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God introduces himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that title is going to mean something for us this morning because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not simply the God of dead heroes. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not simply a God of a past generation that won't walk through the doors today. He's much more than that. He's not even simply the God of the Bible stories that we teach during Sunday school. God is not someone who simply belongs to a prior generation who no longer 
is active. He's not merely the God of the Bible. He is the God of today. Corliss Williamson may not be walking through those doors, but God is. We worship Him this morning, not only because He did things 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, not only because He did things last week or last month, but because He does things today and will do things tomorrow. Our God is a living God. The Sadducees, some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, are going to confront Jesus with a question this morning. It's another attempt to make Jesus look silly. Now you'd think they failed enough times by this point, they would just give the whole thing up. But they're persistent, I'll give them that. And so they come to Jesus and they want to make him look silly. And the Sadducees are a group in particular who did not believe, even as Jewish people did not believe, that you and I or that anybody would resurrect from the dead. They did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in heaven. They believed that this existence on earth, these years that we have on earth, were all that there is. So they didn't believe in resurrection or the afterlife at all. They didn't believe in heaven a bit. And so as those who did not believe in a life after this one, They had developed arguments. They wanted to make people who did believe in resurrection, who did believe in heaven, they wanted to make them look silly. And so they had their little hypothetical, fictional, what-if type of arguments to make people look silly. And they bring one of these to Jesus, trying to make him look like a fool. We can kind of guess where this is going to end, don't we? Let's read this. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say that there's no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, How God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, I pray that your spirit, that you alive today would enliven your word and teach us and encourage us with the words of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Simply put, these guys did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after death, so to speak. And so they had this hypothetical uh, situation that's based on something called leveret marriage. I'll talk about that here a little bit more in a few minutes. But they've got this kind of over-the-top scenario. And it's designed to make Jesus and people who believe in life or a resurrection make them look silly. And Jesus answers them with a couple of different ideas that we're going to look at this morning. He answers them first with this. He says, life in heaven is different than life here. All right? Keep that in mind. And then two, he says this, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. 
So we're going to look at these two ideas this morning. These guys had missed it. He says they were greatly mistaken because they missed these two things. And so we're going to look at these two things. Now, as we, as we do this, I want to take the second one first. We're going to look at this idea that God is the God of the living first. As we do so, we're going to realize two things this morning. We have hope of a resurrection, of a life in heaven, of a life eternal, because God is, in fact, a God of life and not a God of the dead. And he's made promises to you and I in salvation that can't be kept unless he is going to resurrect us. So God has to be the God of the living. And secondly, this, the life in the direct presence of God, life in the resurrection, will be so different in his direct presence that we can't even begin to imagine what that will be like for us here on earth. So let's take this idea that God is the God of the living. Verse 26 and 27, he gives us, again, Moses at the burning bush, and he says, God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there's a couple of things here. One, that's a title that Moses will use, that Israel would use. They would pray by that name, even in Jesus' day. And he says to the people, he says to the Sadducees, listen, God is not the God of dead heroes. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God. Know what that means? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. Now, that, that's just simple grammar. <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to go much farther than that. He didn't say, I was their God. He goes, I am their God. Even as Moses stands in front of that burning bush, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, implying that those men who had died centuries before Moses was ever even thought about, that they were still alive. Now, that's... That's a pretty cool thing to think about right there. Let's, let's move on even past that. God has to be alive, or uh, I'm sorry, these men have to be alive because God has to keep his promises to them. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Let's think about Abraham in particular. God had come to Abraham several times in the book of Genesis, we remember. And he had made several promises to Abraham. Some of them went like this. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great many nations. Abraham, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the sands of the, on the beach, the grains of sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. Now, when Abraham died, was that true? No. Abraham had a handful of kids by the time he had died. So that promise, which we know is going to be kept, if Abraham is going to see that promise, he's going to have to do what? He's going to have to be alive, which means that God is going to resurrect him or give him eternal life. So God had made promises. God told Abraham, all of the world, all of humanity will be blessed because of you. That's going to ultimately take place through Christ. So if Abraham is going to see that promise come true, if he's going to see it firsthand, he's got to be alive. So we know, if nothing else, that the promises that God had made to Abraham, Abraham is not going to see them happen unless Abraham is resurrected. So God is the God not of the dead, he's the God of the living. He's going to resurrect Abraham partially to keep those promises. Another thing, and this is pretty similar to that, and that is this. If God's going to keep his covenant, God's going to keep his promises, if he's going to redeem and deliver Abraham the way he has promised to redeem and deliver us, there has got to be a resurrection. And here's what I mean by that. Again, it was common in Jesus' day, even for the Sadducees, to pray. 
and they would pray and address God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they prayed that because they knew that God was faithful. They, they invoked the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as proof that God kept his promises, that God could be trusted, that God would be faithful. I would imagine that even you and I this morning have people that we know that went before us, maybe a parent or a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, a, a teacher, whoever else it might have been. Someone that God used to pass the faith down to you. And you wouldn't necessarily pray to God as the God of uncle so-and-so. But when you pray, you realize that God has been faithful to those who've gone before you. And that's a reason to give you faith. And you have confidence in God because you have seen God keep his word to others. And perhaps you've even seen God keep his word and do things in your own life. So these men prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because it was a way of saying, God, we know that you're a God who keeps your promises because we've seen it and we've heard it and we know it's taken place. It's always happened. It's always been that way. But in Jesus, when he says that he's the God of the living and not the God of the dead, what he's saying is this. If God could protect Abraham for a few years on earth, if God could give Abraham a land in which to dwell and establish his family, if God could protect Abraham from men like the Pharaoh of Egypt or these kings that would make war around him, if God could protect Isaac, if God could protect Jacob, if God could heal them, if God could do all these things and yet couldn't protect them from death, what kind of deliverance would that be? If God could not overcome death, if all God could do for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was delay the inevitable, where's the power in that? You and I can, even this morning, visit any hospital, visit any nursing home, and we can see that even today, we now have the technology to prolong life, don't we? Some of you may have been the beneficiary of that. We today, through the power of technology and machines and whatnot, we can extend life. We can perhaps extend life maybe two or three days, maybe we can do two or three weeks, two or three months, maybe even years. We can extend life through the modern technology of medicine and all that type of stuff. But can we keep people from dying? No, we can't. And if all God can do, if all he could do for Abraham was to give him a few, a few extra years, if all he could do for Isaac and Jacob and Elijah and Elisha and Micah and Obadiah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Peter and James and John, if all he could do was give him a few more years on earth, where's the, where's the great power in that? In order for God to be a God of the living, he has to be able to defeat death and make death something for his people that is victorious over, that doesn't defeat them. He has to deliver them from death. Death, for us, we look at as perhaps inevitable. God's power is that he has overcome the inevitable. He has overcome death. So even this morning when we pray, when we, when we come to the Lord, we are invoking this idea that God is a God not just of the few years we have on earth. He is a God of eternal life. He is a God that overcomes death. He is a God of the living. Otherwise, 
he's probably not a God worth praying to. A gentleman by the name of William Lane said said this, It's inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death, of which all the misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are but a foretaste. If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of promises of God guaranteed by the covenant. In other words, if death is the last word for them, if death is the last word for you, God is either powerless or He's broken His word. There has to be a life after death. There has to be a resurrection if God is the one who's made these promises. He has to be a God of the living. So if for you and I, if our hope in God is based only upon what we think God will do for us in this life, it's only in the fact, it's only in the idea that God may give us more stuff, that He will make us more comfortable, that He will give to us things that will pass away and rust in a few years. If that is the extent of our hope in God, it's a powerless hope. If all we can hope from from God is a few more years, a nicer car, a fatter bank account, if that's all we can hope for from God, we have a powerless God and a hopeless hope. That's not the stuff of God's promises. This, by the way, is is another nail of the coffin that we sometimes call the prosperity gospel. Now, we may be familiar with the prosperity gospel, this idea that there's guys on TV, there's guys in churches, some even in this area, who will say, if you will just have enough faith, if you'll just do this, you do this, you do that, God will give you the dreams of your heart. He'll give you the nicer car, He'll give you the better job, He'll make you happier. It's a prosperity gospel. Now, you and I might realize that that's probably not true, but I think sometimes we fall into that a little easier than we think. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, if I will just do this, this, and this, then God will... God will make sure he take care of me the way I want him to. And sometimes we might not even think about that, but we might think something like this. You ever had one of those stretches of time over a few months, or sometimes even a couple years, where it just seems like nothing's going right? Y'all had those? I mean, you get one bill. Okay, you got to do this. And then three weeks later, something else happens. And then two weeks after that, something else happens. At some point, you're going, come on! (laughs) Lord, what did I do to deserve this? That's not fair. Know what I just said? I just said I believe in something called the prosperity gospel. I just said because God, I'm a good guy, because I did this or I did that, this treatment is undeserved, I just proclaimed that God was supposed to give me stuff. I just said that God's power was supposed to be in this life only. I may not have meant that, but that's what I said. We fall into that a little easier, perhaps, than we realize we do. Jesus himself said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupts, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, if there is no eternal life, that's a lie. If God is not the God of the living, that verse is deception. And Jesus is a con artist. 
You cannot simply say, by the way, that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Because he said things like that. And when he said things like that, what he's saying is that there is an eternal life in me. That's not something that sane people say. That's something that insane people say or that God says. That's really your only two choices. So if Jesus is telling us the truth, to not store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, but instead, or not store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven, he must be a God who resurrects. He must be a God that has life in store for us. Otherwise, Jesus was just lying. So when we, got, when we die, God does not cease to be our God. In fact, we will see God in a way when we die that we never thought we would see him in, in life on earth. We must resurrect. We must have eternal life for God to be who he said he is. He is the God of the living. Now, that was the first thing Jesus talked about. Second thing he said was this. He said that life in heaven is different. I want us to go back here and look at this verse here. He said, verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, he's speaking of this hypothetical, this man, this, these seven men and that lady, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, there's a couple things going on here. And this might be something that's a little bit unsettling. Um, you mean that Jesus is saying that we're not going to be married in heaven? He says, yeah, there's not going to be any giving in marriage. There's not going to be any marriage taking place. And this idea of this woman who's been married to seven different brothers, he says, listen, they won't be married to anybody there. There's not going to be anybody married there. Now you're thinking to yourself, oh, wait a minute. I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, 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 really? Is Jesus saying that What he's saying is that heaven is different. Now, before we get too uh, upset about this, I want us to recognize there's a couple things going on here. He's not saying that we won't know our spouses. He's not saying that we won't know our families. Jesus is not saying that. In fact, I would, I would suggest this, that when we get to heaven, we're going to know people that we might not have known otherwise, and that the people we already knew, we may know them in a more deeply intimate way than we ever could on earth. But what he's saying is that our relationships will change with them. We'll recognize them, we'll know them, we'll love them, I think we'll be glad to see them. But the highlight of heaven, the point of heaven, is not being reunited with your wife or your husband. The point of heaven, the goal of heaven, will not be to be reunited with a, with a parent or a grandparent. The point of heaven, the goal of heaven, is to be reunited with the God who made you. And I have a hunch that what's going to happen is this. We have no idea what it will be like right now to see him face to face. And when we do, everything else will begin to fade a little bit. The point of heaven is not to be reunited with a family member. The point of heaven will be to be reunited with God himself. That's what heaven is about. Now, so he says here, there's, first of all, life is, heaven won't be like here. He says, one, there's not going to be any marrying in heaven. Life will be like the angels. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean that we're angels. By the way, people and angels, two different things. When someone dies, they do not become your guardian angel. Now, I don't mean to be mean about this, 
But people and angels are two different things. And don't confuse them. We have lots of things, you know, uh, okay, I'm going to date myself a little bit again, but I know some of you remember the TV show Touched by an Angel, right? Cool TV show, horrible theology, all right? Nothing in that TV show is actually biblically accurate, all right? So, cool show, but don't get your belief about angels and people from that show, okay? Get it from the scriptures. So, so we're going we're to be like the angels in the sense that we won't be getting married, but we're not angels, all right? Now, he does say this. How else is life different in heaven? Well, first of all, next of all, is there's no death in heaven. Now, we, we know this, right? There's no death in heaven. God's the, he's resurrected us. He gives us eternal life. So there's no death in heaven. Now, this little hypothetical what-if situation the Sadducees had come up with. Well, this woman got married. There's something called leveret marriage. Now, it's in Deuteronomy, by the way. This whole thing is in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25, I believe it is. And the idea here is that if a husband dies without having a child, specifically a son, and the woman's left, that his brother was to marry her and to provide an heir. Now, it wasn't mostly to take care of the woman. We might think it is, but it's actually designed to make sure that the brother who died, that his name lives on, that there is a legacy, that there is an inheritance, that there is a family line. And if you were to go back to the Deuteronomy passage, you'll see that if the brother refused to do that, the woman is actually entitled to go in front of the city, in front of the community, and say, he won't do his job to make sure his brother has a line. Because what would happen is, if the brother married her, she had a son, that son would not be the, it'd be legally the first dead husband's son, not the second brother's husband son. It's, it's confusing. So the whole thing was to provide an heir who would provide the name and the legacy and the line to live on. Guess what? There's not in heaven. There's no death. So are you worried about someone's line being passed on? Why? No, because no one's dying. So there's no marriage in heaven, as we understand it. There's no death in heaven. So this whole scenario that these guys have come up with it's completely irrelevant, Jesus says. He goes, you guys have so misread the scriptures. You guys are out in left field somewhere. I have no idea what you're talking about. Just stop it. That's my paraphrase, by the way. I've been paraphrasing all morning. Secondly, this. Now, you better go. So there is no marriage in heaven. Well, there is actually. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to right now, but Revelation chapter 19. The Apostle John in the vision of heaven says this, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this who is the bride of christ because christ is the lamb who is his bride the church we are the bride of christ so there will be a marriage in heaven it'll be us 
metaphorically, it's a, it's a picture married to Christ. Revelation chapter 21, the first four verses. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We remember that marriage itself on earth as God has established it all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That God established marriage for, marriage for a couple of reasons. One is, in the relationship of man and wife, husband and wife, God says, that reflects my image. There is something in the marriage relationship that God says reflects me to the universe. Now, I would, I would suggest that there's a picture in the husband and wife, male and female coming together, that is a picture to some degree, of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the New Testament tells us in particular that marriage is to be a picture to the world of the relationship between Christ and His people, the church. And of course, we also know that marriage is also given in Genesis as a way of procreation to multiply and fill the earth. When we get to heaven, we will no longer need pictures to tell us what God is like because we will be directly in His presence. We won't need a picture of His character because He will be in front of us. We won't need a picture of the relationship of God's people, the church, to Christ because we will be there. And so one of the major reasons that God's established marriage on earth will be no longer in existence. We will be there. We don't need the pictures. The reality will be in front of us. So life there will be different. Finally, this God, here's another way life will be a little perhaps different in heaven. God is the center of heaven and of all of our eternal relationships. The church, marriage, these things point to God. Now, again, some of us may be going, I still don't know if I don't like this idea of not being married in heaven. Some of you are going, well, maybe I am, but I don't know. <laughs> Piper, John Piper says this about this whole idea. If the age to come, that's our eternal life, if the age to come is not only an improvement over the worst of this world, but it's also an improvement over the best of this world, then the end of marriage is a spectacularly good news. Marriage in this age, at its best, offers some of life's most intense pleasures and sweetest intimacies. If you've ever tasted these or have ever dreamed of tasting them, then you can feel the astonishing force of this promise. that marriage will be no more because it's too weak to carry God's best eternal pleasures. The more you feel like you would miss marriage, the more you should rejoice that it will be replaced with every taste or every dream. Remember this, it's only a foretaste. Did you catch that? Marriage at its best 
in this world is something spectacular. Imagine what heaven must be like in the presence of God when the best of this world will only pale in comparison to what is yet to come. See, heaven, eternity, is not only going to be better than the bad stuff in this world, it will be infinitely better than even the best stuff in this world. And God's telling us, listen, I know that you're in love with fishing on the lake. I know you love hunting deer out in the, out in the woods. You, might, you pick it out. Whether it's playing the guitar, singing, shooting stuff, <laughs> playing golf, whatever it is. All those things that you think make your life worth living here are nothing compared to what is there. If you think heaven's playing 18 holes of perfect golf, if you think heaven is bringing down that 12 point with a bullseye shot, if you think heaven is, and you just fill in the blank, you are grossly under, understating what heaven's going to be like. For when you and I encounter the living God, when you and I encounter face to face the one who gave us life, who created us, who fashioned us, and we see him in his unfiltered glory and majesty, golf will fly out the window real fast. The best of this world holds nothing in comparison to what life will be like. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And the life that is yet to come holds a promise to us like we can never possibly imagine. However good you think heaven will be, it will be infinitely better. I don't know how else to say it. We are here this morning to worship our Lord because He is the God of the living. He didn't just act 3,000 years ago. He acts today. Let me say these two things again here. We have eternal life. We will resurrect because God has made promises to you and I that can only be kept in the resurrection. And secondly, Life in the direct presence of God in eternity will be more intensely alive, joyful, and pleasurable than anything we can possibly imagine here. Not only will the resurrection be better than pain and suffering and disappointments and the trials of life, the resurrection life will be immeasurably better than the best of this life. That's what it means that God is the God of the living.